Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies, a part of the New Books Network. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Tom McLeish about his new book, Faith and Wisdom in Science, published by Oxford University Press. Tom McLeish is professor of physics and former pro-vice chancellor for research at Durham University. He studied his first degree and PhD in polymer physics at the University of Cambridge, and in 1987 became a lecturer in physics at the University of Sheffield. In 1993, he took the chair in polymer physics at the University of Leeds. He took his current position in Durham in 2008. He has won several awards for his work on the molecular rheology of polymers, including the Weissenberg Award of the European Society of Rheology in 2007, the Gold Medal of the British Society of Rheology in 2009, and the Bingham Award of the Society of Rheology in 2010. He is also involved in science communication with the public via regular radio, TV, and schools lectures, discussing the issues from the physics of slime to the interaction of faith and science. He is a fellow of the Institute of Physics, the Royal Society of Chemistry, the American Physical Society, and the Royal Society. Tom McLeish, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you, Garrett. Well, I wonder if you might begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, love to. I was um, born in southeast England, um, early 60s, and um, uh, it was, of course, the decade of, um, of, uh, of the early space race, the moon landings. I remember in uh, um, July 1969 being woken up by my parents at... Um, I think half past two in the morning it was uh, London time uh, to watch Neil Armstrong step out of the moon. So, but before then I knew that um, I was interested in all things natural and uh, uh, the science of the world around me. Um, I think my grandmother was a big influence on me. She, uh, my uh, paternal grandmother did a, a botany degree at London University when she was a young woman and um, I remember her introducing me to uh, to photography. I mean, the, I mean, develop it your own photography and the the, the 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 magic of seeing the image appear under the developer um, in the dark room under that red light. Of course, no one will know what we're talking about now because it's all digital. <laughs> but um, of course, photochemistry. Um, and then she also gave me uh, a wonderful present. She gave me when I was a child a field microscope, an old brass field microscope that had belonged to her father. It's a, a Victorian thing, beautiful thing, um, with on a mahogany box and a brass stand. You could, um, and I used it to um, look at insect eyes and flies' wings and, <coughs> pardon me, um, leaves and, and uh, a bit of blood I managed to extract painfully from my finger. <laughs> Um, and this all, so the intricacy of the tiny world beneath that uh, the microscope revealed. And then my parents kind of gave me a telescope also when I was about 10 or 11, um, and the rings of Saturn and the stars above. 
Um, there's also great science at school. So I remember always, always being fascinated to learn, to learn more, always knowing that's what I wanted to do. Excellent. Well, how did you uh, come to study rheology and what is it? Well, yes, rheology is, of course, one typewriter keystroke away from theology, as has been pointed out to me many times. Um, just move that R across to the T. But no, it comes from um, the uh, Greek word for flow. Rheology is the study of flow and deformation of matter. Um, I became interested in that, um, uh, funnily enough, when... when um, uh, leaving school, I I, uh, I wanted to find out how science worked in industry, um, and at those days there were many companies that would uh, would sponsor students um, who wanted to do engineering. But I knew I wanted to do physics. I knew phys- physics was uh, I discovered was the most fundamental of all sciences, for me, as far as I could make out, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I was fascinated by how this worked in industry, and there was a, a textile company called Cortels. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, whose research laboratory is right in the middle of England. Um, so I needed to leave home, live in Coventry for a year, um, met some very different uh, types of people. So from a personal point of view, that year, um, uh, getting to know a church uh, fellowship, for example, from my own point of, uh, own, own, uh, uh, point, point of view, um, but also um, uh, working in an industrial lab, seeing... Uh, um, the uh, the materials that made man-made fibres uh, manufactured. So these are the polymers, the macromolecules, the giant molecules of the molecular world. Um, think of if you think of uh, the water molecule as this tiny little boomerang-shaped thing, um, uh, ten billion times smaller than an arm span. Then then the polymers would be on that scale giant strings that would cross a room and a liquid made of these giant strings um, can be drawn out of course into string like uh, um, uh, uh, strings themselves and can be woven into uh, uh, ropes, fibres um, uh, drawn out into sheets but I discovered that um, the uh, very little was known about the underlying science of this of this stuff in in the lab. So I came away from the industrial lab experience, um, having very changed and broadened as a person. I needed my I needed my uh, soon to be Cambridge graduate and southern English corners knocked right off me by the Midlands uh, motorbike driving, beer swilling plant lads uh, who I enjoyed working with very very much. But I also came away realising since science needed to be done. And then fast forward a couple of years to my final year at Cambridge. Um, and I remember going to a lecture by Professor Sir Sam Edwards, one of the great 20th century physicists, uh, who, um, as a research student of Julian Schwingers from Princeton, one of these giants who'd realised that the great quantum mechanical physics of the 20th century, the quantum field theory, tools and sort of thought set could be put to good service in understanding the statistical mechanics of complex uh, materials or the thermodynamics of random materials. And, and Sam had been working with a delightful Japanese chemical engineer, a theoretical chemical engineer called Masao Doi in Cambridge that those past two or three years. And they had developed 
a theory for how these complex molecular string-like uh, gloopy liquids um, behaved, how we could connect the molecular world into what we see in the macroscopic world. Um, I should say I've always been, I think what it is about science that, has, that uh, captured me early is, is that it, you can think of it as this special sort of sight um, seeing down beneath the surface of the material world. And so I love to do. Anyway, so Sam got up and said at the end of his lecture, which most of which I didn't understand at that point, um, well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think we have a first theory of viscoelasticity, um, which describes the rheology, the strange flow of these materials that are both viscous liquids and elastic at the same time. And I realised I was in probably almost a unique position of knowing that industrial laboratories all over the world desperately needed a fundamental science of this rheology, the science of elastic flow, and the fact that I was sitting at the feet of someone who'd just written down the very first theory of all this. So I decided that this is what my PhD had to be, uh, the beginning of something, of something new. So uh, sticky, slimy stuff has been my scientific life since then. And, it, and the stories here also make it into your book. Um... A little explaining some of the science and and how it uh, illuminates your approach to uh, theology and the Bible. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how your background in science then led you to write about uh, this uh, about the Bible and also this tension between science and religion. Yeah, certainly. Well, um, I think there were two things. Well, well one is um, not at first sight to do with Christian belief or theology at all. Um, it's, it's that as a scientist, I was aware on the inside of just how imaginative and creative uh, and also just sheer hard work science is. You mentioned the story. I, t I tell the story of what happened next with that theory, and it took really 20 years for the global community to accept it, and there was a very, very hard struggle. And I, as you quite rightly point out, I say in the book that new science theories, when they're little babies, are just like babies, all helpless and weak, um, and can easily be left out in the cold um, to die, uh, the cold of scientific criticism and, and hard data they haven't got around to explaining it. So actually, um, the owner or the producer, creator of a new scientific theory needs to fall in love with it really for the first few years of its of its of its life so that's the illustration there i became aware that in the public sphere and in the media this is not how science is understood at all it's seen very as a rather in many places as an unimaginative rather methodological humdrum geeky techie not very creative um and maybe less human than music or the arts or theatre or painting or story or song or dance, or any of those things, for me it's always belonged to that class. So one of the things I wanted to do is to write a book that um, explained why science is just as deep and just as human as all those other things that make us human. But the other thing is that, so of course, alongside this, I developed a Christian faith from my young adult years um, and uh, had also um, uh, 
naturally discovered the love of the Bible, also love of talking about the Bible. I love talking about anything. So in particular, I talk about the Bible, and I've become, in the Anglican Church in the UK, what we call a lay reader. That's a lay preacher. Um, that involved a theology course, a diploma, for about three years. Um, and so as a new uh, full professor at uh, Leeds, and back in 1993 or four, um, I was invited by uh, the bishop um, to address the diocesan conference. Very interesting thing they used to do um, would be to take a cross-section of people from the church. So, so uh, the pastors, lay people, children, young people, older people, families, workers, homekeepers, um, everybody you could think of. About two or three hundred um, out of town to think through what it means to be a, a church and what the issues of society are we can address and speak into. And he said, look, you're a professor of physics and you're um, a lay preacher uh, in uh, one of our parishes. Um, please come and talk to us, to us about faith and science because we're all confused. Many people are telling us there's a tension between them. That they're, uh, that they're in permanent conflict. How do you resolve this in your mind? And uh, I realized at that point that I needed to do some thinking because for me, there's never been any conflict or any obvious reason for conflict between the Christian belief and uh, and uh, scientific practice. Far from it. I've always seen, seen since I've been a Christian that to be a scientist is a is 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 uh, to answer God's call on 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 my life. That's what He wants me to be. I believe. Um, so how could there be a conflict? But I realised that there were reasons that other people thought there were. So uh, I had to do some hard work, and that was a long time ago. But it's been twenty years of. Uh, thinking, reading, talking, listening, um, trying to understand where people were coming from. Um, one thing I noticed was that very little of the Bible and science discourse is kind of is all centered around scripture or drenched in scripture. So one of the things I wanted to do was to talk to, as a scientist, but as a serious reader of the Bible as well, um, where it did touch the Bible, it tended to orbit around the first chapter of Genesis, which I think is a rather over-selective and um, unhelpful thing to do, that there are creation stories, 20 or 30 or more of them all through the Bible, and there's a rich scene that I wanted to, uh, to talk about and relate to um, what we do as scientists, but also how science works in the world. The way I put it, is that it seemed to me that society has lost a cultural narrative for science. We don't know what science is for. We've forgotten where it fits into being human, um, and we don't know what it's there to achieve. Um, and it seemed to me that what one needed to do was to move beyond, as it were, negotiating a boundary between science and theology, um, but actually to think about what science does inside God's kingdom, inside our calling, what science does for the history of fall, salvation, redemption, renewal, resurrection, um, if you like, uh, so the church can give science a big bear hug and call it its own and receive it as a gift from God. Talk in those sorts of terms. So those are the different strands that, um, that, that got me writing the book. That's excellent. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about your book is the way in which um, you read the Bible with uh, the scientific understanding and that it really has helped you to see um, 
the natural wisdom is one thing you call it, but also the it's the attitude of science or this curiosity about the natural world that is actually deeply embedded in the Bible. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, particularly the way it, in which it appears in some of the less discussed text uh, other than Genesis, but such as Jeremiah and Isaiah and Proverbs? Yes, love to. Why don't we, why don't we do that before we build up to um, what I call the sort of summit of all, of all passages? Yes. Yeah, let's do that. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I've realized that, of course, you can't look up science in a concordance and then flick through all the places the Bible talks about science. That would be presentist and anachronistic and just the wrong thing to do. But actually, um, if you science is a very modern word anyway, and scientist a very modern word. Um, but if Instead, you just stand back from science and ask about what it does. And I think what science does, it helps build, and as I draw out later, in fact, go on to heal um, the relationship between humans and the natural world that they live in. So if one starts asking about texts that talk about the relation between um, the human predicament and the natural world in creation, then you find that, as you quite rightly pointed out, the theme is very, very, very rich, particularly within the wisdom um, uh, uh, books. Um, and in some ways, I think you probably, if I had my way at ordering the canon, I might have even put the wisdom literature right at the beginning uh, rather than the Pentateuch, but uh, there we are. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> that maybe that, that that that's probably a, a, a little um, unorthodox. Um, but then, but anyway, certainly, if if you're going to start to think about science, and I would say start with the Psalms, with Proverbs, um, and then go on to Genesis after that. And the reason for that is, is you realise there's these little creation stories um, that are rather simpler. Um, but more, more, more fundamental than the rather more ornate and uh, developed liturgical form of Genesis 1. Um, t- here's an example. Um, if we go to Psalm 33, um, which is uh, a, a psalm that begins, as many do, with a sort of musical call to praise, um, it finishes with... Uh, Uh, what I call an extended affirmation of hope for the nation, for God's chosen nation. But between the call to praise and the affirmation of God's hope for the future, you get a little creation story. Here we go. I'll just just read it, just four lines. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Um, well, I'd say rather new vocabulary for the creative act, but it becomes very emblematic of um, creation stories throughout the Psalms and Prophets and, and uh, uh, Proverbs too, that creation is um, talked about as the formation of boundaries, the ordering of the material of creation into different phases, the, the, the land to one side, the sea on the other. No, he gathers the water of the sea into jars so that it can't flood back over the land again. The deep below, the deep is put into storehouses so it stays there. And the starry host above. So you have this three-dimensional ordering of the heavens above, the foundations, the earth below, the land and the water separated. Um, and then the, the second way is that these... Um, these creation stories operate. It's always within a story, within the history 
of deliverance, of typically between a, a despair and hope blend in the past towards um, healing in some time in, uh, uh, in, in, in the time of vindication to come. So uh, Jeremiah is a wonderful example because by the time you, um, by the time you, you get to recognize this uh, trope of um, foundations and heavens of boundaries, Jeremiah gets to tell the story, but it's when you read Jeremiah at chapter four, he's warning Israel of the consequences to the physical creation of them turning their back on their creator. And it's like putting the film in backwards, like running the movie backwards. Um, listen to listen to this. You'll hear the same things again. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. At the heavens, their light was gone. I looked at the mountains. They were quaking and the hills were swaying. I looked, there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So where the heavens were, with a starry host, are no more. Where the land was fruitful because of the water irrigating it, it is now dry. Uh, And the earth being uh, uh, fixed uh, and established is now shaking. So what Jeremiah does is to run the film backwards as a horrific um, warning of, of consequences of, of godlessness. And uh, uh, but of course you only you only know that if you know the fundamental creation story and you know that Jeremiah is running it running it backwards. So we develop that, and the other thing I develop is is just is the observation that wherever human relationship with natural creation is talked about in the Bible, it is always in the context of pain. Um, and you may say, "Well, come on, science! How you'd be surprised? Scientists you doesn't get much more painful than doing science." And I have a certain <laughs> sympathy with that. Um, but interesting, just think about Genesis. Now, let's go to Genesis. Go to Genesis. Um, Crazy story, briars, thorns, pain of childbirth, proverbs, full of creation stories. Um, that lovely one, it's probably my favorite creation story of the birth of wisdom in chapter eight of Proverbs, where wisdom was a little girl, Sophia. Um, Sophie is playing at the Lord's feet, delighting as he throws up sort of sandcastles of mountains and plays with, plays with, plays with this beautiful, open, creative, fruitful creation. But of course, Proverbs is a very painful book. It's shot through with the pain of wrong turnings of leading the unwise life. Um, and so forth. So this this uh, long biblical story of the creation and nature language of the Bible describing the still chaotic and still painful relationship with creation seems to me to be both very, very authentic, um, but also deeply intriguing. Does, do, I'm curious to know if the pain aspect is what prevents the the wisdom literature in the Old Testament from becoming idolatry. You know, it's not as if we see pantheism emerging or, you know, is that why there's always this slight uh, frame shifting away from that and a tendency to see these things as symbols of divine creative power? Or how how do you think about those things? Well, that's a good question. Um, I... 
Yes, um, I don't, we'll talk about Job in, in, in a, a, a minute, I think. And um, uh, it's true what you say. One of the I, one of the ways I analyse the um, the the uh, framing of our relationship with nature in Job, I, there are in fact I think six, at least six, but six major um, different alternatives with which our relationship with Job with nature. Is described, and in fact, the, the idolatrous worship is actually one. Um, it's it, it's one that doesn't make so much sense to us these days. But at one point, Job, in in his many um, speeches in which he insists on his own righteousness, that he hasn't, in any moral sense, deserved the suffering he's received, um, says, "I never, I never kissed my fingers to the moon," um, and it's. It's it's when he's being really rather recondite and 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 and, and quiet. Um, and uh, uh, as I say, the idea, of temptation to kiss our fingers to the moon is perhaps not one that we we notice much in our urban sodium lit landscapes. But um, but out in the Middle Eastern desert on the darkest of nights, when a great silver orb hangs against a velvet background, thousands of stars. It's a different thing altogether. It's a different thing altogether. So maybe you're right about the pain. I think the other way of thinking about the pain is just the natural consequence of the Jeremiah spoke about. Jeremiah spoke about a sort of future fall, but a fall fall is something that, and its consequences, is something that in some sense, of course, happens all the time. There is sin and there's consequences for sin. And if there's anything we 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 know, have discovered practically about our relationship with with nature, like all broken relationships, I mean, you have a you know a tough relationship with with someone, and it needs mending. Chances are that the problems start with ignorance. You don't really know each other very much, very well, and then because you don't know each other, you don't know their motivations, how this they're going to work. There's fear, and because there's fear, then there's thirdly this step of harm. Now. Our, um, our relationship with nature uh, embodies all those three stages. We start off very ignorant of the natural world, and so we're frightened of it. Um, I'm, this, uh, this motivation for doing science, by the way, so that it draws the sting of fear from the natural world, is a very, very old one. Uh, one theme of the book, of course, is that is that what we now call science is the chapter, latest chapter of a book that humanity has been writing for many centuries, it's not millennia. And uh, so where I come from in the northeast of England, I work now at Durham Cathedral, uh, local cathedral at my um, town uh, where I work, has um, the uh, the tomb of the Venerable Bede, uh, a late uh, um, 8th and early 9th century um, holy scholar who wrote a wonderful 8th century science book. And uh, he explains why he's doing this. He says, I'm writing to you, um, students, about about nature so that when the lightning strikes or when the earth shakes, whatever, you won't think that there are evil spirits out there trying to get you, but that this is nature working as nature works, um, with its own its own mechanism, its own works that God God created for it. Yes. Well, with that, let's, let's turn to the book of Job, which is really the, the heart of your argument, uh, which is beautifully articulated. Um, and you also say that it really is at the summit of your um, of your uh, look at the way in which the Bible informs this uh, conversation between faith and science. So tell us a little bit about how Job uh, prompted some of this thinking. 
Yes, well, I've, <laughs> since I first read the book of Job a long time ago, I've wanted to write about it um, as a as a scientist, and in, in some ways, um, I've written the whole of the Faith and Wisdom in Science book around the book of Job. I think it's the most important nature writing in in the whole of of, of the Bible. Um, but of course, it's uh, people have raised an eyebrow at me when I when I've said that because people find it's a difficult book. You know, there's um, there's Job, Job as a sort of suffering servant of, of God. He's lost everything, lost his family and, and and wealth and house. He's he's also lost his health. He's sitting there covered in disgusting boils um, on a heap of ash and um, surrounded by three friends who do the right thing for three days and keep their mouths shut and then they then they then they make a very bad move and start uh, talking to him. Um, um, about uh, about the way that uh, the world works and that the world hurts you if you do bad things, and that's not, of course, what Joe wants to hear. The the um, the nature uh, uh, um, poetry seems to come later because, of course, Joe. One thing that Joe wants desperately is for God to answer Job's accusations that he's being treated uh, most unjustly. And for 37 chapters, of course, uh, there's silence, terrible silence, um, often the experience of the suffering person. And then we're told God speaks from the whirlwind. And what comes there is this extraordinary nature poem. It's known as the Lord's Answer. And every verse is a question. Um, and it's beautiful. It starts with a creation story. Um, Job is asked to stand up. Um, and uh, he's taken to the beginnings of creation, and God asked him, where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me, if you have insight, who fixed its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring cord across it? Um, uh, and so on. So there we have the um, the ordering trope, the, or the fundamental biblical creation story again. And then God asks Job questions about all the physical world, where is the realm of the dwelling of light? And as far as darkness, where is its place? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Um, where is the realm where heat is created? Where does wind come from? Who cuts a path for the thunderbolt? And then the stars above. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose Orion's belt? Really deep question. Listen to that. The... Uh, the writer has noticed that some stars are clustered together and others um, are, are distributed further apart. What is the force? What is it that binds the tight cluster together? Um, can you determine the laws of the heavens? So anachronistically, the Lord's answer in Job moves in question form through all those fields of science we now call astronomy, geology, oceanography, zoology, and so forth. Um, of course, it's uh, it, I say it's 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 anachronistic to say so, but but nonetheless, I think there is a continuity between those deep and searching ancient questions and the uh, investigations people call science now. But the the secondary literature on the Book of Job has been very hard on the Lord's answer. Um, the the standard commentary uh, response is to call it no answer at all, but a sort of petulant put-down from a deity that just wants Job to shut up. After all, it doesn't seem to be answering Job's question, which is a moral question. 
around why he's unjustly suffering. God seems to be saying, well, look, yeah, do you know how, make, how the stars move? Ah, well, you don't know nothing, do you? So um, just shut up and be quiet. Actually, Job does shut up and, and, and gets quiet at this point. But um, what something I've noticed in reading the whole of the book, including the three cycles of speeches and the earlier material, is that none of the nature image or nature metaphors used in the Lord's answer to Job are in the book for the first time. They all already occurred in the earlier discourses of the book. And it's possible to take us, I I would... Uh, a nature trail through Job from the very beginning without leaving the, if you like, the, na- the nature trail. So that's what I wanted to do and to discuss why it is that the, the tension between order and chaos in the natural world acts as a continuous metaphor in support of the moral argument about order and chaos and why the Lord's answer is an answer and why that makes our relationship with the natural world so important. Yes. You know, it's curious that your science background has really positioned you in a way to be to see uh, this book with fresh eyes. And I, I was simply astonished by your interpretation, and it gave a rich, rich new meaning to the book. Um, I'd always appreciated its poetry, but this helped me to see an engagement with the world in a way that I had never uh, done so before. Well, no, that's really you to say so. And I'm, I'm, I should say I couldn't be more delighted when people um, say things like that. And I've had a few Old Testament scholars saying, hmm, um, yes, no, this is actually worth thinking about. I should say I'm very, very grateful. Um, I'm not sure he agrees with me, but for the advice and encouragement of, of uh, a man called David Kleins, uh, Sheffield University, now retired, who spent his life. Um, with the book of Job, who calls the book the most intense intellectual and theological book of the Old Testament. Um, uh, He's also uh, produced his own translation of the Hebrew, which he kindly allowed me to quote from in the the book. So I've had a lot of help here. Um, But I have noticed, just 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 to perhaps flag out how I... Um, draw from the book of Job this idea that a theology of science can begin here, rooted in the wisdom literature, and talk about our relationship with the physical world as one of the relationships that needs to get healed within the kingdom, is paradoxically in the um, uh, in the words of, of one of Job's friends. It's an interesting book because sometimes the Job's unwise friends are giving wise words to, to say. And at one point, Elihu um, talks, uh, one of the Job's friends, talks about the day when he will repent, when he, he will be in fellowship with God once with Yahweh once more. But he says something else. He says, you will be in covenant with the stones. And it's a, it's a shocking thing to say, because the word for covenant, there it really is the Old Testament, the Hebrew word used for that highest of all relationships. It's the word used for the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant. It's the same word. Um, and we have it with a stone. It's so scary that it's tra- it scared some translators off. Um, and uh, people have chickened out and translated this in, in other ways in the past from time to time. But, uh, but no, it's really there. Um, and I think that, 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 that made me smile because I could see within this book is this vision of a healed relationship in which um, humankind 
mind can have the sort of mutual, deep, under-the-surface knowledge and respect and mutual bond in wisdom with the natural world that we so lack now. And that this is the task in which a Christian framing for science is um, somehow engaged. Uh, this, I think, it has a New Testament resonance uh, too, of course. It's important to look at all this through New Testament lenses, and your listeners will realize I'm already doing that in the words that I, that I choose. Right, and this is your connection to St. Paul. I had actually never uh, realized the connection that you make between Job and Romans, where St. Paul writes about the groaning of creation. Can you talk a little bit about that and how then you transition into talking about the reconciliation that science can be a part of? I, I uh, certainly nod at, of course, the prologue to John's Gospel being a, a creation story. In fact, it picks up some of the Logos language um, by the God's word, where the heavens and earth created that we see in the Psalms. Um, but in Paul as well, creation, the, the very deeply physical creation, is, um, is very, very much to the fore. And you remember what I said about Psalm 33 and the other the, the Old Testament creation stories being often bridge passages. It's when you move from current predicament to future hope. It's very often via the contemplation of God's purposes with the physical and natural world. And this is true of perhaps Paul's most sublime um, part of Romans, maybe our favorite favorite chapters. You know, it's the, it's the chapter that begins, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where he starts. And he gets by the end to there being nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not height, nor depth, nor storm, anything can, can separate from the, from the love of God. Of love of God. Between that, that beginning point and the end point where Paul gets to in Romans 8 is uh, this extraordinary passage about all creation groaning until the children of God be revealed. It also talks, um, so there's the pain again, it's the pain of childbirth. There's a new creation being born here, and there's a, it's a deeply relational issue between the whole of creation and the children of God. So moving on um, in Paul to his correspondence to the Corinthians, I'm so impressed by Paul as the master of the of the soundbite. Um, I'm sure if we bumped into St. Paul in the Agora or in the Corinth Market Square as a Hellenistic Jew or a, a well-educated Greek and asked him, Paul, in the, in the AD 60s or so, um, what is this uh, it's new teaching? What are you talking about? It makes no sense to me, this new way. I don't think he'd have said, well, do you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob straight away? Or let me take you back to Moses. Not straight away. I'm not even sure he'd have told us about Jesus of Nazareth straight away because, of course, uh, that's, those stories weren't well known in the ancient world at that, at that time beyond the small Christian communities. He'd have said, I'll tell you what it's all about. It's about the healing of broken relationships. Because we all know those. We all know about those. We all need know about the need to be healed. And that's the way he put it, the way he said it, of course, to the, in 2 Corinthians, was we have the ministry of reconciliation. So that's the theology in which I think our relationship with the natural world belongs. And I think that's where science belongs. It belongs as the toolkit within the kingdom to participate in the healing of that most humble of relationships. It's not the great ones of nation and nation or people and people or within families, but it's it's a humble one between humankind and the natural world. 
big resonances, by the way, fast-forwarding two millennia to, to the 20th century. Um, even a, 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 sort of a humanitarian commentator or literary critic like George Steiner um, said, uh, in, in, in this context, actually, the purpose of art um, was to to waken, he called it, into some measure of commensurability, the inhuman otherness of matter. Hannah Arendt said, said similar things. So we have even 20th century philosophers and commentators talking about the human need for a bridge to be built between uh, the, the part of nature which is human, namely us, and the inhuman otherness of everything, of everything else. So extraordinarily, these 20th century philosophical ideas dovetail um, for me beautifully in the story we've been telling from Old Testament wisdom literature into St. Paul. Out of this, you know, what you, there are a number of consequences, I think, uh, for the way in which we teach and share science in public, but also how we celebrate science in churches, which I think churches have not been, uh, that has not been their strong suit. So how, how, do, how what are the implications of some of these uh, things that you've been arguing both about the Bible and the way that uh, science is motivated by this profound curiosity of our natural world? Well, absolutely, Gary. Thank you very much. Well, of course, there are many, and I should spend a chapter. Not, I mean, each of these could be a book on its own, couldn't it? And I do hope um, some of our colleagues might write some of them and put them into practice. But here are a few ideas. So, so the first thing is, of course, just to is is to let our scientific discoveries and knowledge inform our preaching and our worship not as something which needs to be sort of negotiated, uh, some sort of negotiable truce with, as the sort of materialist atheist would have it, but as something that we can grasp as God's gift um, in thankfulness. Um, that's the first thing. What about celebrating um, just as much those, of, those young people from our churches who leave... Um, and go off to do science and engineering degrees as those who leave and work for mission uh, stations or whatever. I remember, you know, at church, our experiences, um, folks going off to full-time Christian work up at the front of church, you know, have a prayer letter, so forth. Well, if we do it with them, and I'm not denigrating that at all, fantastic stuff, how wonderful that they're doing that, but how just as wonderful that some of our other young Christian people have a calling to go and read physics or chemistry, um, and let's celebrate them in the same way. Wouldn't that be a fabulous, uh, fabulous um, uh, symbol? Um, I know some churches, actually, in the northern, northern city of uh, uh, um, uh, York, though I uh, come from, who um, recently got together and um, uh, decided to launch a science festival. In fact, it was an ecumenical project. It involved the Baptists, the um, uh, Anglicans, and the Methodists uh, between uh, in, uh, one local region region of town. Just launched a, a local science festival just to, because it would enrich the people who lived there. Um, and they had a little exhibition of, of science-related stuff people had in their attics. Um, there were some lectures and talks given by local people who worked at the university. It was a fabulous thing to do. It wasn't particularly linked at um, a mission, but it's one of those things that wove the church into the cultural fabric of the community, which I'm sure uh, you'll know is one of those um, sort of pre-missional activities that's so, so important, part of being salt and light. Um, and then, of course, there is, thirdly, the area of mission itself. Um, so many of our young people, uh, and actually not so young people for that matter, so sadly have fixed in their minds that you cannot be a Christian and believe in science for all sorts of strange reasons. Um, 
So one thing we can do is to make sure that uh, in our missions, we visibly celebrate and do the apologetic stuff around um, around, around that. But yeah, um, going on into the media, um, I think with a with a the- if you like so theologically equipped, we can help the society at large talk much more sensibly about science. One thing I, I point out in the book is how bad we are at having adults what I call as of adult conversations about difficult science and technology topics. And I think this is true in the US as well as this is in the UK. Um, you know the topics I mean, um, fracking or GM or um, climate change or nanotechnology, geoengineering, all of these things. Um, people just tend to argue about them. We don't tend to move forward together. But I think the church can be really very effective, armed with a purpose for science, Sure, theology is really about the only discipline and belief is really the only worldview that, that still manages intellectually to grasp what the um, authentic talk about purpose might be. That's the context in which we can talk about these things. So there's a political, educational, media, worship, mission, you name it. I think this stuff goes everywhere. Oh, I've even thought of one other thing. Um, when people are hurt... Um, we give them healing, we sometimes call it therapy. We've discovered all sorts of therapies that help people, music therapy, dance therapy, art therapy. Hmm. And I've talked to a number of practitioners of these, of these fields, and I think what they do is quite, quite wonderful. Um, well, uh, I know this sounds kind of weird, but if science is about restoring our broken relationship with the inhuman world around us, might not some hurt people need something we could only call science therapy? Um, now, I know your listeners will be thinking, wait a minute, it was science that drove me mad in the first place. It's not going to create a therapy <laughs> for me. Um, but, you know, within this theological uh, lens, maybe we can do this. Obviously, it won't be book learning or rote learning or doing math questions. It'll be playful. It'll be restorative. But that's another long-term project that this is leading me too that i'd love to play with myself yes so uh i know i've taken up a lot of your time but uh tell me a little bit more about what you're working on now oh um yes well thanks briefly so um i've got fascinated um by the physics of protein molecules i'm actually working with uh, biologists um uh, uh in an interdisciplinary project um to uh Funny enough, it's it's got the theme, it's got this order and chaos theme that comes out of of, of the book, um, uh, molecular matter at the nano scale at room temperature is under constant vibration and random chaotic motion, um, and yet biology manages to bring order out of this, and I'm fascinated by that. So I'm working on the way that proteins signal through their thermal noise. Um, actually, I've got a project on science history too. Um, this is really wild, my favourite interdisciplinary project. I'm working with some Durham medieval historians working at some of the science of the high Middle Ages. Um, it works really well because um, if anyone's good enough at Latin and medieval philosophy to understand what the texts are saying, they probably gave up science when they were about 13 years old, and that's yeah. what this coming to help read the mathematics there. So we're having fun there too. Um, and then I'm thinking early days, but thinking towards another book, which will be looking at how science is like poetry and art and music, um, just to work out one of these consequences of uh, of uh, uh, faith and wisdom, the, the science is deeply human story. Mm-hmm. 
It's fascinating. Um, well, we'll have to have you back on the show when that uh, follow-up book is published. Right. Um, you know, just as a way of concluding, you know, I, <clears throat> I think about science really beginning and ending in wonder. And I, I wonder if you might comment on that generally. And, and is that... Is that the place where the biblical writers, you know, began? And it's also the way in which scientists now, as they investigate nature um, and medicine, um, that we also step back as we learn about the new discoveries in science or see images from Hubble or whatnot. You know, uh, is this where it also ends and propels us forward? It's wonder is in the middle there somewhere, but I'm not sure I'd say agree with you that it's the beginning or the end. It's it's usually used that way, but I think one of the things I'm trying to take us on is is to say it's actually much much more than wonder. It actually begins with creation. It perhaps goes through wonder, but it ends with recreation and reimagining the universe. Um, Kepler, that great uh, Renaissance astronomer, talked about knowing God's mind after him. Gosh, that sounds uh, uh, that sounds as if we're claiming too much, doesn't it? But actually, there's a most wonderful passage in the book of Job um, that's called the Hymn to Wisdom. We haven't talked about yet. That talks. It goes on. It's very amusing. It talks about where wisdom can be found, and there's a sort of search underground for the miner, and it's not under the ground, and it's not under the sea, and the depths haven't heard of it. But then God. Um, is described as seeing into the creation and measuring the waters um, by weight and measure and that sort of special seeing into creation in which we are invited to participate. So, yes, it's wonder, but it's also about participating with God in the reimagining and recreation of of the world. Uh, It's about calling. It's about commission, too. Well, I I certainly wish we had more time to explore uh, these topics um, in in greater depth. But I really appreciate the time that you've had. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. It's been a real pleasure for me, too. Thanks, Garrett, very much indeed. All right. Thank you. That concludes my conversation with Tom McLeish, author of Faith and Wisdom in Science, published by Oxford University Press. I hope you've enjoyed today's program, and we'll listen again to another program on new books in biblical studies. 